0: We invite our children to be dismissed for their time and experience of worship as we bow together and pray. Let us pray. Having begun the Lenten journey, O Lord, may the wonders and mystery of your cross break new light and Allow us to see your way anew. May these services of worship leading to Easter strengthen our call to be your followers and inform us evermore of the great gifts that are ours. If only we would step into them. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Here's a question I heard countless times growing up in church. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins? I can't tell you how many times I heard that question asked generally, asked of me in particular, And how often I was encouraged to go out and ask that very question to strangers and friends and family. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins? It's a question that elicits a yes or no response often. But there are times when one hesitates not because of disbelief but rather because one wants to clarify really what the question is asking for example what do you mean by the word believe a minister was talking to another man said him one day do you believe in infant baptism the man answered believe in it i've seen somebody do it so what does it mean to believe And what does it say about God and us that would require Jesus to die on the cross? How does Jesus dying on the cross even affect my sins? How does it save me from my sins? These are questions that we might put under the category, the why of the cross. Frankly, some people find these kinds of questions tiresome, even irksome and perhaps even offensive. Some people are content with the answer that they have and the question as it's asked just at face value. Do you believe it? Yes, I believe it. Sort of like the person who is perfectly okay plugging a light into a a socket in the wall without ever understanding how electricity works. I'm one of those. I just do it. I don't question it. Maybe that's the way you are about your own faith. Other people have a singular understanding of faith. It's usually the substitutionary theory of atonement that they're happy with and feel defensive about. So that asking why about the cross feels to them a kind of threat or like someone's trying to equivocate around the issue of Jesus And our relationship to him. Then there are those who worry, frankly. That if we examine the question of the why of the cross too closely, if we take apart the cross too much, that like Humpty Dumpty, it will never really go back together again. Why ask why, they say. We're not the first ones to wonder and ask why. Two chapters after our reading for today, Luke tells us the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus. Presumably they were followers of Jesus, and now they're baffled because he's been crucified on a cross. Their understanding, their experience with Jesus happened within a framework of Jesus being a messianic liberator who would come to conquer and make right. And so now what do they do? How do they understand the fact that he died a criminal's death? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, I came to you. I didn't come preaching great wisdom. I Decided I would know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. He later says, Foolishness to Greeks. Greeks are all about the love of learning and the the celebration of beauty. That's the only way they could expect holiness to be revealed. And so a man on a cross? It doesn't compute foolishness to the Greeks and stumbling block to the Jews Paul says Jews with their high ethic that couldn't compute the scandal of dying a criminal's death on a cross with the ways of God so the why of the cross the why of the cross is not an attempt to make the death of Jesus palatable to us sort of acceptable in our modern culture it's not just seeking a logical explanation the why of the cross isn't trying to find fault with other views of the cross or to argue over our understandings of the cross it's not designed to replace one bible image with another or to replace any all the bible images with newer ones but it is i think to try to recover The scandal of the cross, to recognize the complexity of the cross, to acknowledge that the New Testament and the first century church used all different images, all different allegories to try to explain the mystery of the cross. They used the judicial. Image from the courts of law to speak of justification. They used commercial and business dealings to try to speak about redemption. They used images from personal relationship or relationships between groups of people in order to talk about reconciliation. They used images from the battlefields to talk about the triumph of good over evil. They used the sacrificial system the Lamb of God, the ransom, to talk about the penal substitution. They used the substitution, uh, having a worthy substitute, to talk about the sacrificial system. They used this image of new birth and new creation to talk about this new era that Jesus' death and resurrection ushered in. And they used... The notion of mentoring or teaching or example to say that even as Christ died on a cross, so you and I take up our cross to follow him. It's so important for us to understand that each one of these responses to the why of the gospel and the why of the cross is an allegory, an allegory, a human Comparison to try to convey that sacred and myst- mystical reality that we believe and we've experienced has happened in the cross of Jesus. They speak to the why, but they are not, none of them fully contain the why, which is why I think we need more than one understanding, more than one allegory, more than one picture of the cross of Jesus. So that we can understand it in its beauty and in its complexity. That's why I, in particular, appreciate the story that C.S. Lewis wove together many years ago. To try to understand the why of the cross. It's a children's story entitled, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of you have read it before some of you have even seen it in the movie theaters so you'll know this familiar story of the four children peter and susie susan and edmund and lucy who live in this english uh, professor's home trying to play trying to just entertain themselves they find themselves one day playing hide and go seek when lucy goes into this closet it's a wardrobe And for some reason, this wardrobe is the entrance into a whole other world. It is called the land of Narnia. It's close to this world. It's next to this world. But it's a different experience. And as she enters into this world, she recognizes that it's cold and it's dark. She meets a fawn who has no power, who, who is just a, a servant in Narnia, but is kind to her and gracious to her and, in fact, was supposed to turn her in to the queen of Narnia, but at the last minute decides not to do it. The faun instead ter- tells little Lucy about this one who calls herself the queen of Narnia. She's not the queen, in fact, she's the white witch, and she's the reason that here in Narnia, now it is always winter and never spring, never Christmas. Lucy goes back into the regular world with her siblings, and the next one to come into the land of Narnia, really quite by accident, was Lucy's brother, Edmund. Edmund sees the world differently. And so perhaps it's no coincidence that the first one he encounters in the land of Narnia is not a fawn or another benevolent animal, but it rather is the white witch herself who recognizes Edmund as a son of Adam and recognizes that he is one of those that she has to conquer, she has to kill in order for her to retain her dominance. And so she seduces Edmund, with an enchanted candy called Turkish Delight, and he develops this insatiable appetite. It's a beautiful and vivid picture of being addicted to that which is most destructive to us. Lewis writes, Nothing spoils the taste for good good and ordinary food as bad magical food. The Queen, the White Witch, Promises that if Edmund will go and bring his siblings back, that she will make him a prince and that he will rule over his brother and two sisters. And he would like that very much. Plus, she says, you will have an endless supply of Turkish delight. And so... When the day comes when, in fact, all four children find themselves in the land of Narnia, the first thing Edmund does at his first opportunity is to sell out his brother and sisters and give them over to the queen. He tells the queen where they are, only to discover that she captures him and uses him, Edmund, as bait for the others. The only hope... The only one who can make any difference in this situation is the great lion, the Christ figure whose name is Aslan. Aslan alone has the power to face this witch. Susan and Lucy have heard about this Aslan. Is he safe, they ask? A lion? Is is he safe? Safe, they said. "Oh, Oh, no, he's not safe. But he is good. Aslan comes, and it's evident that Aslan is back in the land of Narnia. When Father Christmas arrives, Santa Claus, and offers gifts to all the children, and the winter begins to turn to spring, and things begin to thaw again, at last they get to meet. And Aslan is both great and terrible. They set out to rescue Edmund and do so. But once Edmund is rescued, the white witch comes to Aslan and says, I demand a meeting. I demand that Edmund be returned to me. She says, It is written in the deep magic by the emperor beyond the sea, the god figure that for every treachery I have the right to a kill. His blood is my property. Aslan nods his head. He and the White Witch confer together, and unbeknownst to Edmund, Aslan offers to die himself in Edmund's place if she will renounce her claim upon him. And so after a sleepless night, The great lion walks to the stone table, the altar, and allows the minions of the white witch, who were deathly afraid of this lion, who could wipe them out with one swoop of his giant paw, allows them to tie him up, to cut off his great mane, to muzzle his enormous jaws, and then to mock him. And then comes the white witch who comes up close to his ear and asks, And now who's won? You fool, you think by doing this you would save the humans? I will kill you so that the deep magic is appeased. But when you're dead, what will prevent me from killing the others? And then who will take him out of my hands? So with this in your mind, despair and die. Susan and Lucy are hiding in the woods watching this scene, but they cannot bear as they can tell the knife is going to come down into Aslan the Great Lion. After Aslan is killed, the witch and the minions rush out to find and destroy the children of Adam and Eve. Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy. Susan and Lucy come out from the bushes when it's safe and approach the now dead body of this one that they have come to love, this great and not safe lion, Aslan. They wipe the blood off of him. They try to untie the many cords that are around him. They remove the muzzle from his face, and they weep bitterly. They're waiting with Aslan, not knowing where to go or what to do. When the morning dawns, and they hear this enormous crack, they rush back to the site where Aslan's body was was only to find it is gone and the stone altar has been cracked into what is this said Susan now they've taken his body what does this mean is this more of the magic and a loud voice from behind them says yes it is more magic and they turn to find that Aslan is alive again his mane is full his strength is back Susan asks, what does this mean? Do you hear the why question? Aslan says it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a deeper magic still which she does not know. She only knew. Back to the dawn of time. But if she'd have looked further back into the darkness before the time dawned, she would have read a different incantation that said, If there is a willing victim who is who would be killed in the traitor's stead, the table would crack and death would start to work in reverse. the deeper magic the deeper magic is the power of love and in this tale lewis weaves together all of these images that we get from Scripture of who Jesus is and what Jesus does, the brokenness of the world and the eternal rules back from the beginning of time, the battle between the individual, not between the individual, but between Aslan and the white witch, the substitution, the sacrificial lamb who redeems, and the example that Aslan sets. For we know the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is but the first story in this tale from Narnia that the battle goes on and that we're called, Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy and you and me, were called to take up this fight in the work of love and to bring it forward into our day. Each why of the cross, each image, each allegory that we get, Weaves together in concert, pointing to the deeper magic of God as if to say, Jesus Christ dying on a cross saves us from our sins in so many ways. And the question for you and me today is, has that cross of Christ saved you? There is a story of a group of young men wandering through a town one day, bored and unruly, just trying to find things to do to entertain themselves by getting into trouble. They were goading and challenging one another to do first one thing and then another. When they came upon a little church and on the marquee outside the church, it had these words, Jesus Christ died for you. Some of the younger boys turned to the oldest one, the bravest one, and said, we dare you to go into the church and tell the minister you couldn't care less. He said, I'll do it. It means nothing to me. So he knocked on the door of the minister's office. When the minister invited him in, he said, your marquee, it says Jesus Christ died for me. I couldn't care less. He turned to leave, when the minister said, Wait. Oh, why did you come to tell me that? He said, well, my friends challenged me too, and it means nothing to me, so here I am, goodbye. The minister said, hold on. You took a challenge from them. Let me offer a challenge. I dare you to go into the sanctuary and say those very words. Sure, said the young man, it means nothing to me. So they walked into the sanctuary. They faced the cross He said, say it now. And so he did. Jesus Christ died for me, and I couldn't care less. Say it again, said the minister. This time, feeling a little uncomfortable, he said, Jesus Christ died for me, and I couldn't care less. He turned to leave as quickly as he could. The minister touched him on the elbow and said, Please, one more time, look look at the face. And this time, the only words he could get out where Jesus Christ died for me. Here's a young man coming under the enchantment of a deeper magic. Glory to God. Let's pray together. Bring us under that deeper magic of your eternal love revealed in the face of Jesus on the cross. Call us and cause us this day, as individuals but as Highland, as this faith community, to bear the cross, to proclaim your love in all that we do and say and are until that day when springtime comes and we know that you are here among us. Glory to you, O Christ. Amen.